Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm John Atak to this day. And uh, here's my still. most excellent friend, Mike Rinder. Hi, John. Nice to see you again, yeah, as always. always. Yeah, isn't it? It's been fun, hasn't it? We're, we're, um, we're getting to know each other quite well over, over time, really. <laughs> That's, that's exactly right. We've covered a lot of territory. I'm not sure what what you have in mind for today at all. Well, you see that I, I don't have anything in mind for today, so <laughs> we're going to have to make something up. Um, oh, ooh, the, let's let's talk maybe a little bit about control and manipulation in Scientology. That um, you know, as an insider, while we we're inside. There's, there's this sense that, that we've got the truth. We, we, we know how things work. We have the technology of the mind and spirit. Mm. And then when you leave, you start realizing that this is actually one of the most controlling groups the world has ever seen. The, you know, I, when I came back in 2013 after an absence of you know, 16 or 17 years, I did so because I realized that even though Scientologists can shed the language, um, they don't necessarily shed the concepts and ah. they don't examine those concepts. So you've, you've been out now for, for quite a while. Um, and so has that journey been for you that, you know, realizing that, that, you know, there were no operating Thetans and it was, um, it's a, a pile of fetid dingoes kidneys, I think is the expression that Douglas Adams would have used. To describe Scientology. <laughs> How, I'll have to remember that one. Fetid dingo's kidneys. Lovely, yeah. lovely. I like yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's good to know, isn't it? He was a great it's philosopher. A, John, it's a slow process. Hmm. I don't think that there is any way of making any instant cutoff. Okay, I used to think that way, and now I'm rid of it. If you believe that, you're still in the deluded state that you were when you were in Scientology. I've just had a cognition that Scientology doesn't give you cognitions. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to write a success story about it now, too. <laughs> and thank you, the COB. Uh. <laughs> but it, it's, um, it's something that I have, you know, talked quite a lot about and, and, um, I have a sense that I still have remnants of, of things that were sort of inculcated into my thinking from a very young age cool. that I haven't yet realized even. Like, I, I, I sort of have this fear sometimes that the way that I am seeing things or reacting or my perception of things is based on something that is founded in some weird shit from Hubbard. And I try very hard not to, but I'm not convinced that that still isn't something sitting there. Mm. Um, and the, the, you know, I feel like I've come a long way in the self-awareness of what is it that is real? What is it that is just, you know, Scientology tech? And yet I'm not entirely convinced that it's all gone. I, mm. uh, you know, I, I, that journey has also been 
been very um, enlightening and rewarding in many ways because, you know, sort of the first thing that happens, or at least it happened to me, I can't, I can't really generalize because I'm not sure what happens with everybody. But the first thing that happened with me was the realization that the WOG world is not so woggy. You know, that the WOG world is in fact not uh, worse than the, the utopia that is in the minds of Scientologists of the Scientology world. In fact, it's in in many, many, many respects far better. And that was you get, a real You get to sleep a lot more in, in the non-Scientology well, wog world. That's one thing. Ab and you absolutely, eat better, you know. Absolutely, John. And freedom of choice and nice people and people that are actually concerned about your well-being and don't give a shit how much money you've got. And like all sorts of little pieces of this constructed world the constructed wog world in scientology um just didn't turn out to be true and i think that that probably was the first sort of major change in my view of what's real and what's not what scientology think and what is actuality and there but there's been many others like these days i have some very close friends like extremely close friends who are gay and i find them to just be wonderfully empathetic decent kind caring people and you know, that certainly isn't how I was raised. I was raised that those people are one one and steer clear from them. Covertly, and, covertly hostile. I'm going to translate right. as we go. Okay, oh. good job. That's excellent. <laughs> but but that that sort of thing is is um in some ways extremely liberating. Yeah. You know, you to to wake up to the fact that hmm, I uh, guess that wasn't true. That isn't my experience. Just because L. Ron Hubbard said it was the case doesn't make that reality. Mm. Was, is, is a sort of a, you know, Janice said that it was the, the process of peeling the onion. And a lot of people have cottoned on to that little phrase that she, I think she, really kind of coined on the idea of what it takes when you're coming out of Scientology, peeling back the layers of insanity to get to the very core. I think I'm sort of close to very close to the core, but I'm not sure that there isn't some core still there. And maybe that will never be the case that I will have absolute certainty about that. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe Absol the only absolutes are unobtainable, didn't you know? <laughs> I know, but it's like the old Hubbard quote: "Oh yeah, the only man that 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 isn't uh, crazy is the one who thinks he's not crazy." I mean, and he knew that <laughs> the only the only person who is absolutely certain that they have got not you know not got any remnants of Scientology left in their system 
is perhaps the person who still has the remnants of Scientology left in their system. Certainty is a is a like a hallowed uh, state in Scientology. Mm. You are you are supposed to be certain about everything. Certainty trumps knowledge. Certainty trumps information. Certainty trumps everything in Scientology. So I, I'm very wary of being certain. You, you know what I mean, John? That That's okay. like one of the things that is hammered into you about certainty and certainty. And Hubbard talks about it all the time. So I'm like, uh, it's hard to get me certain about too many things, uh, mm -hmm. particularly when it comes to Scientology. So, you know, it's funny that you bring this up because I was talking, um, I guess it was so uh, start of this live stream I did with Mark Headley yesterday. I was talking about the delusion within Scientology and how pervasive and astonishing it is. And I was just giving one example because someone sent me a picture of a guy with his nuclear bracelet and his nuclear bracelet was number 76,000 something. And I'm like, okay, we're in 2023 and Scientology continues to talk, and every Scientologist continues to talk about clearing the planet mm -hmm. and how they are clearing the planet and planetary clearing is becoming a reality. They've always got this future future tense to everything, but nevertheless, the, the idea is they're getting the job done. They're changing the world. Society is being bettered by the brilliance of L. Ron Hubbard and the hard work of Scientologists and planetary clearing is in their grasp. And all they need to do is give some more money or devote some more time and it will be happening like you've never seen before. It'll be monumental, it'll be epic, it'll be this, it'll be that. Mm -hmm. Okay, 76,000 clears made since 1950. Let's, and you know, we could even be generous and say, let's say 1966 when Hubbard declared John McMaster the first clear slash SP, um, that whatever that span, say, let's say it's 70 years or 50 years, it's immaterial. Yeah. In 1950, there were 2.5 billion people on planet Earth. Mm -hmm. Today, there's 8 billion. So Scientology has actually gone backwards by 5.5 billion people over the lifetime of its existence. Mm -hmm. Clearing the planet has gone backwards 5.5 billion steps. And the 76,000, like probably half of them are dead. And probably of the remaining half, uh, uh, half of them have actually left Scientology. So, but 75,000, 25,000, 100,000, a million. It's immaterial in the overall scheme of things. And any Scientologist could walk down to their local organization and see the subject is dead, that nobody is involved or interested, yet they believe that the world is curious, that everybody is is clamoring for Scientology because that's what they've been told. And th this level of delusion, you know, even if they don't walk down to their local org, the, 
the fact that they know that the number of clears being made every year is in the hundreds, and, and I say clears being made, not one of them is actually a clear per Hubbard's definition. No. Just take them at their word. The number of clears that they claim to have made is in the order of magnitude of hundreds a year. They anybody with a half a brain would go, we're not clearing the planet. What why are we saying we're clearing the planet? We're not, we're not even, we're not even, we're not even the the flea on the ass of an elephant. Like we're just nothing. Nothing is happening here. And we're not getting anywhere. And yet they will tell you with with incredible certainty and incredible sincerity that this is exactly what's happening and this is exactly what they're doing. And this this level of delusion is is really kind of sad, actually. Isn't it? I mean, and I can put some numbers to it. In 1978, my clear number was 17876. It's an easy number to remember. So that's that's to say in 44 years, they've added 60,000, um, <clears> which is, you know, the fastest growing religion in the world, according to their promotion. And I, I asked for an explanation about clear numbers while I was still a member. And I was told that every organization is assigned a batch of clear numbers. Right. So the, when the Manchester organization gave me my number, they got a couple of hundred others. That, right. That, so uh, and. A better measure would be how many full OTs are there, how many OT8s are there, and uh, how many of them are still involved. You know, as you say, how many have died because a lot of them were old people who'd been hanging on, hoping to do it, and right. a, and a, a tremendous amount of people have just left. You know? Yes, so it's not, yes, and and not doing very you, well, really. If you take the total number of OT8s, John, it is well, well well less than 10,000. Yeah. It is probably less than 5,000, maybe less than 3,000 yeah. because they are still since 1988 or whenever it was that knots came out, they are still clamoring to try and get 10,000 people onto or through solo knots. And 10,000 onto or through solo knots means 10,000 people who have ever participated in auditing on OT7, and they are up to 7,500 or something. So that's the actual reality of the size and scope of Scientology. And clearing the planet, I mean, they can't even clear a block in Los Angeles or in Clearwater or even a household. So... It's it's just absurd, and the, and then you go, oh, okay. So, the two largest centers of population, or the two largest countries on Earth, with population-wise, China and India, is two and a half billion of those eight billion, yep. and there is not a single org in either one of those places. The the entirety, the Middle East has no org. All of Africa, except for South Africa and Zimbabwe, well, Zimbabwe doesn't even really count, those two are closed. Uh, all of Africa, except for South Africa, doesn't have an org. All mm -hmm. of South America, except for Argentina and Colombia, 
doesn't have a single aug. It's like, this is clearing the planet. This is craziness. Yeah. Yeah. It, it and, and it was, it was ever thus a, a friend of mine. Um, it was David Gaiman when he was the a deputy guardian for public relations in the 1960s, who issued the statement that there were 5 million Scientologists. And a friend of mine who was working with him said, um, how did we arrive at this number? And he said, well, judging by the number of books that have been sold and the amount of auditing that is that has to have happened as a consequence of that, I reckon that. And he sort of going, well, in the last census that, that I saw, which is 2011 in this country, there were 2,000 people claiming right. to be Scientologists. And that would, of course, include family members who didn't dare say no, right. uh, and, and the dogs and some of their body thetans, perhaps. At the same time, there was something like 130,000 Jedi. So the Jedi religion is, is much faster expanding than Scientology. And I must <laughs> say that we Sith, really object to the propaganda of the Jedi as well, you know, while we're on the topic, you know, that, that there are millions of us as well, and we're really nice people. And, and what you say there You're about so you know, the suspicion that there's still something in your head. I remember talking with Cyril Vosper, the author of The Mindbenders, who yeah. spent 14 years in Scientology and then had um, sold 108,000 copies of that book, told me. Wow. But he said that that he would still find himself, and I met him 14 years after he'd left. So there's a 14 years in, 14 years later. He'd still find himself walking down the street going, oh, did I commit an overt or something like that? So it, it's deeply ingrained. I, I came back in 2013 and started talking to people because I realized that it's quite difficult to get this stuff out of your head. Um, yes. Even if you reword it, you know, Scientologists, I have conversations with Scientologists about past lives, reincarnation, um, transmogrification of souls. Um, and that they'll, I'll sort of say, you know, you do get that for Hindus and Buddhists, this is called the fear of the eternal return, that, that the wheel of suffering for the Buddhists, you are trying to escape this. So the idea, I'll do it in my next lifetime, that right. doesn't really occur in the religions that, that hold this to be true. Then you'll have the overt motivator sequence, which has now become karma, or if we're going to be a pedantic karma vipaka, action and reaction. I have yet to find a Scientologist who believes in karma who's actually studied any Hindu or Buddhist texts. On the... That's not true, actually. I have met one that I can think of who studied some Buddhist material on it. But otherwise, it's just accepted this is true. Now, I'm not telling... I'm not suggesting that people just simply disbelieve for the sake of it. it you know, there, there are positive, there are beneficial things that came from our membership of Scientology, mainly the camaraderie, I think, you know, the mm -hmm. sense of friendliness and what have you, and a lot of what Hubbard would call negative gain or realizing it's bullshit. Um, but not being able to then process these ideas and go through them, my thing when, when I left was, um, it, it, my departure was a bit strange because I left because I believed in Scientology and I believed it had been taken over and Hubbard wasn't there anymore. This is um, October 83. And of course, Hubbard right. was very, very much still there and suffering from dementia by this time. So there were some very strange final um, issues coming out from him. 
but it it seemed to have been taken over forgive me by a bunch of thugs um and i was not going to have any any part in that so i left and i'm you know right at the middle of the independent movement i'm the uh, chairman of the ot committee uk as appointed by captain bill robertson i didn't know he was a fruitcake you know and and i'm there defending the independents from the constant harassment that's coming at them and i stopped believing within a few months because i've got a pack of material about 18 inches deep um a wonderful new zealander called john hansen said uh, i've just been to see uh, Mike Flynn, and he gave me this stuff, and I'm never going to read it. Do you want it? And I just sat there and read through this pile of documents, you know, his school records, newspaper reports, his college, you know, his failing grade in molecular and atomic physics, which, of course, he admitted to in the lecture. It's not a, a great uh, secret. Um, and I, I just went, he's a liar. He's a con man. And I got into this process, having believed thoroughly for nine years. I really was a true believer. I got into this process of going, well, the only way I can deal with this is to reject it all because I'm seeing it through the lens of Scientology. I, you know, I yes. so started with trying to use the data series on Scientology and going, well, actually, Scientology is utterly irrational. You know, what's the most important bit of Scientology? Because importance is a very powerful thing in the data series. No idea. No, where does <laughs> Hubbard say this is the most important thing? So. Then I started looking at the data series with the data series, and you got that, um, I think it's data series 48, 48th policy letter says, the data series policies must be read in order, in sequence, uh, because out sequence is, in, I'm going, and it's number 48? <laughs> you know, surely this should be zero before we do anything else. And I, so I, decide, <laughs> I decided somewhere towards the, middle of 1984 somewhere there that i'd got to reject all of it and then look at it piecemeal and and see if it made any of it made sense to me and i hate to say this but i haven't accepted any of it because there's a thing that hubbard says somewhere about the original version of something will be the best and what i found and i wrote a paper called possible origins for dianetics and scientology which i think is a brilliant title and um it's really catchy and and i, I in doing it's that, very I academic yes I'll give very, you that. very academic isn't it very academic <laughs> and uh, you know for a, a lad who dropped out of school at the age of 17. um but in writing that i discovered that there were origins for all of his ideas and that the people who'd expressed them had actually as he said made a better job of it than he did because hubbard had this thing about altering things you know, you have to put a lie into something. You have to alter is something if you are going to make it persist. And, you know, the lie in Scientology is that it works. <laughs> it's quite simple. <laughs> but and it, it, I've never wanted to pick up the cans again. Never. Uh, you know, but I think you've come to the, you know, the, the ultimate perception, which is I need to be careful. I interviewed a chap who'd been on the Watchdog Committee uh when uh dd vogading was was running it back in 82 and um i interviewed three members of the, of the 14 members of the watchdog committee it was a, a rare privilege and i interviewed this guy you know in secret in a hidden location and what have you and i've never known yeah, yeah. him and i never will and um at the end of two evenings of interviews in some shady diner 
he um he said to me the great thing is john will never be conned again and i just looked at him and said <laughs> no the great thing is i realize i'm gullible and that's the only defense <laughs> i have you know? so and for me that that the, perhaps the fundamental idea in scientology that that just makes it all alice through the looking glass is self-determinism right by doing what ron says you'll be you're being self-determined exactly thinking for yourself yeah and my first year away from scientology was like a bliss state It, it was incredible i'd spent nine years trying to cram everything into this ridiculous set of ideas this hodgepodge of ideas and being able to go well, I don't care about that. That that sounds like nonsense to me. And right. just pick and choose and not having to, to be a member of any faith group at all, you know, be able to be an agnostic and say, you know, so I can attack anybody else's beliefs, but they can't attack mine because I don't have any. <laughs> Very but, cunning. Yeah, it was it was carefully worked out, you know. <laughs> but it, it, it is fascinating how invidious the, the beliefs are. And and of course, your situation, you know, having dealt with a lot of people who've been in Scientology, I've talked with about 600 members um, and had something to do with them, think, you know, rethinking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and sometimes that was just an hour or two. And with one guy, it was 35 years before he finally went, oh, yeah, this stuff's bad for you. You know, this, this. <laughs> and, and he, for all of these years after I met him, and you know, I met him maybe fifteen years after he'd first got in. He still kept saying that there, there's, you know, Scientology has become dangerous. It's a terrible thing. The OT levels are nonsense. But the original Dianetic technique is really good. And he eventually it took that long. And so I did because I spent what seven years, the first seven years of studying Scientology, getting the history down, helping. Russell Miller do the biography of Hubbard. So, you know, Blue Sky, the history. I started to work on how you accelerate the, de- the departure of the mind from Scientology. And I pretty much got to a place where in the early 90s, I could talk to, <clears throat> I could spend a day with somebody. And by the end of the day, they could have written, a, we had one guy, right? And he'd written a success story that morning in the org. And then spent the rest of the day with him and you know his head had started to come out of it within a couple of weeks he was gone i'm happy to say that nobody i talked to joined the independence let alone went back to the the mother cult oh wow okay Uh, because this is a question that i have john and it, it because people ask me all the time, okay, well, I've got a family member in, or I've got mm-hmm. like, what should I do about that? Okay, so what's your best advice? I think I asked, I think I asked you this when we did the the fair game podcast with Leah. Yeah. And I, I asked you this question, like how did but I like I'd like to hear it again. I'd mm. like I'd like to know what your take on how you go about doing this is. I mean, there there are two distinct things. The first thing is how a family <clears throat> member or or a friend should should treat with a Scientologist. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. To, you know, the advantage I I had in going into the room is is that I know the history of Scientology. Right. I know Hubbard's biography backwards, and I also understand the techniques, and I also know 
um, how the coercive psychology works. And that that took a you know a few years of doing. So it, it does become quite specialized. You that's so let's call that intervening, you know, or, or recovery. But the the first part is how how would a if if somebody you love becomes involved with Scientology, how do you deal with them? And I think the advice it's given standardly throughout the the ex-cult world is you know Steve Hassan or Yanya Lalich um will be saying well the important thing is not to antagonize them not mm -hmm. to try and present them with evidence I mean um when I was involved um I, I went to a family dinner and then we were on a very long table in a, a pub that you know my brother had hired a room in and my wife and I who were um, both involved with Scientology at this time were at the end of the table. And these newspaper clippings were passed down the table to everybody. And it was about the Guardian's office, uh, people going to prison. Mm -hmm. And that was just the most foolish way to try and approach the problem. Um, I talked with um, Hoyt Richards uh, recently, I think we've put it up, about his brother trying to do an intervention with him. And that I think for seven years, he just didn't talk to his brother. He was, he was in a little group called Eternal Values. And his brother had done everything out of love, but he hadn't understood the psychology of this. And the psychology is right. you don't try and argue somebody or reason somebody into changing their mind. You have to create a circumstance in which they'll be willing, in which they won't lose face, in which it's safe to, to think again. And I mean, I did an intervention and this young man was due to go up to Oxford um, and he'd gone to Portland, Oregon for a holiday and he flew back to tell his parents that he'd signed a thousand million year contract with this fantastic organization. And so his mum and dad called me and I didn't have any preparation time. You know, I usually would spend three months trying to understand the person before I'd sit in the room with them. I haven't done this kind of work since 95 or something, but because it's just a bit, bit the harassment that comes on the other side of it's a bit too much. But nonetheless, I turn up and his dad, the first thing he says to him, he said, is you look so brainwashed when you got off the plane. It took me two mm. hours to deal with that remark, you know. So anything that will antagonize the person is, is a bad idea. What, what you do is you, you maintain a, a friendly relationship with the person. So that from the point of view of a family or friend, that's the best place. If you can get them to talk about it, then I would say just accept what they say. Don't argue with it. And there are questions that you can use. Um, the first is, what was it that attracted you to Scientology? Um, what benefits did you feel you were going to gain from Scientology? What benefits mm -hmm. do you feel you have gained? And you know, let let people, you know, I have a friend who said he'd not looked up words in dictionaries before. And you don't point out to them that the dictionaries existed before Scientology, so it's not a new idea. You just go, oh, that's a good thing. You, you know, you can acknowledge that. And then you say, what do you expect to get from Scientology? And you leave it. The point is to start a process of thought in the person so that they they can go away and go, well, yeah, what do I really expect from from this? Hmm. You know, I'm going to become superhuman 
and um, be able to blow up planets at a distance. Or so at that's... least they won't. At least they won't get a cold again. Yeah, there is that to it. You'll never ever get a cold again, and you'll have an incredibly high IQ. You'll be so clever, in fact, that you'll give all of your money and your time to Scientology. <laughs> you know, brilliant. Mm, um, yeah. So. But well, that's, have... that's interesting, John. I mean, I find that fascinating. And I, I'm I'm sure that you are right. It's it's just it's such a frustrating thing to try to um help people who and, and I know this, this is so frustrating for family members in particular, to help people who so clearly need help and yet will resist any efforts to help if those efforts are not framed properly mm. and don't you know run afoul of their their preconceived notions of what help is or what what someone what goodness is in someone else you know i have often told people Look, don't try. I, I have said the same thing to people. Don't argue with them. Don't try and tell them that they're wrong. You know, my my perhaps uninformed best advice is to have them uh, like try and use L. Ron Hubbard's statements to encourage them to look for themselves. You know, look, don't listen. That's what Hubbard says. Look, don't listen. So look, go look at your local org. Go actually go in there and see what's happening. Is this is this really working out good here? Is something you really see, already happening? already you've you've entered content, contention into it, and that you know, I you you pointed in the right direction. But the problem is that anything that brings up defenses, is, right, is we we're really this is the 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 idea of cognitive dissonance, which is the most tested hypothesis in psychology I have read, um, that Leon Festinger came along in the 1950s and curiously his case study was of a Scientologist. Uh, the book really? is called, yep, the book is called When Prophecy Fails. And um, it's an amazing book. He basically said, ah, if you challenge people's beliefs, they will believe more strongly. The yeah. better the evidence you produce, the more they'll believe. So the, he infiltrated a couple of people graduate students, poor people, into this tiny little cult. And this was a, she was a trans medium who was channeling um, a, a being from an alien planet called Santa Nanda or something like that. And she was told that the world was going to come to an end. They had to go to this hilltop and the mothership would come and pick them up. And so Festinger's she was a Scientologist. She she had a live-in Scientology auditor. This is back in the early 50s when it hadn't, you know, when the Hubbard Association of Scientologists was just emerging and people weren't being licensed, but she was having regular auditing, which doubtless helped, you know, picking up the voice of the alien that was in her mm -hmm. head. And so Festinger said, what will happen is this. Those of her followers who don't go to the hilltop, when the mothership doesn't turn up, and I don't know how he knew it wasn't going to turn up, but apparently <laughs> when it doesn't turn up, they will stop believing. Those who do go to the hilltop will continue to believe. Because our prayers worked, because our, and this is how cognitive dissonance functions. So understanding that, it's getting the person to do the thinking for themselves. Now, 
the best way of doing that and this is it's so frustrating and so difficult but you ask the the person to talk about Scientology, to tell you about Scientology, to explain Scientology to you. Now, you and I know that Scientologists are not meant to use verbal technology. They're, mm -hmm. they're meant to just point people to the material. But we we do it anyway. Right. The more we talk about something, the more we explain something, the more we realize that it doesn't fit together. Yes, I hear and, you. And so, you know, it, it, it seems counterintuitive almost, but you don't argue with them. You don't disagree with them. You don't raise an eyebrow while they're talking. You just sit back and get interested in what they're saying. I used to say to people, treat them as if they're either your new best friend or a lunatic who's escaped from the asylum. But treat them, <laughs> you know, be nice, be absolutely friendly towards the person be curious about what they're saying and be genuine in that curiosity um rather than than going in you know with you look so brainwashed you know which isn't really very helpful or how could you be so bloody stupid as to believe this you know it's also necessary to look at the dynamics of the friendship or, or the family relationship it it's sometimes but far from always the case that there is a damaged <clears throat> aspect of the family and the family need to deal with that. If you know, I, I talked with the Scientologist briefly until he asked me if I'd been declared suppressive. And I, I, my thing about this was you always tell the truth. I, I know there are quite a lot of people in the exit counseling intervention business over the years or deprogrammers or what have you, who were quite willing to lie to people to get them into the room. I never did that. So if somebody asked me a question directly, I'd have to answer it. This guy said, have you been declared suppressive? I said, yes. He said, I can't talk to you. And so it was a very short conversation. But he had um, four siblings and in the been involved for 20 years. And in the seven years up to our meeting, he had not spoken to anybody in the family other than one of his siblings. So he'd not spoken to his mum and dad. He'd not spoken to the other three siblings. He ended up marching up and down outside my house in East Grinstead with a placard about me breaking up families, which I thought was somewhat ironic <laughs> because by the time I was done, he was back in touch with his whole family. <laughs> and so that, you know, <clears throat> having somewhere to, to run to, you know, when if one day you decide that Scientology is an awful thing, the loss of face. Yes. Know? So, you know, Steve Hassan. He had this thing where uh, very sensible advice, you, you know, some Krishna is trying to recruit you on the street and you talk to him, you say, when's the last time you talked to your mum? And it's like, let's go to the phone now and I'll pay for the call. And, and just getting, making sure that the family is working as, as well as it can, but that there is tolerance. At the worst end of it, I, I was at a conference a couple of years ago and a woman came up to me and she said how glad she was that, that they had the abortion rule in the C organization so that her child who was in Scientology wouldn't be having she wouldn't be having any grandchildren because it would be awful if they were brainwashed in Scientology. And I didn't she was gone before I, I could stop her and say, no, it, it isn't. You know, it isn't like being born into the SS. It, this is, <laughs> you know, Scientology is I, I think people have become a little too scared of what it is. Um, 
And there are. I, I agree with you about that, John. I, I agree with you. Although I, I do believe that that fear is abating at a rapid rate. I, mm -hmm. I think that the yeah. general view that people have these days about Scientology is not the the fear that had been so prevalent 20 years ago. No, I, I think massive I change. think people are now seeing there has been a lot of people who have come out and spoken out and they're still alive and kicking and it seems to be okay and there's a lot more media that cover this stuff now and there seems to be a lot more acceptance of the fact that yes this is an abusive organization and yes we know that there are people who have been hurt by it and so you know that's a wonderful thing that that is thanks to you know groundbreaking people like you and you know so many others and then the media and then you know the Tampa Bay Times and Larry Wright and Alex Gibney's efforts made a huge impact. And I am certain that the aftermath had a big impact oh, yeah. Yeah. because it was weekly and it was just stories of people. And you couldn't deny the fact that these people were sincere and that Scientology saying every single one of them was just a liar and a thief and a this and a that became so old and so tired and so incredible that I think that Scientology's credibility has in this idea that everybody who says anything about Scientology is a bigot, a liar, an embittered apostate, uh, you know, whatever all the, the little phrases and, and words that they use to describe us, nobody buys it anymore. And that has taken away an enormous amount of the fear factor that Scientology used to rely on. And I, <laughs> I think that, that, you know, collectively, all the people who have been involved in this should pat ourselves on the back and say, you know, there's a long way to go, but we're moving in the right direction. I think uh, going on to hashtag I got out and, and telling a story is, is, is important. I mean, the late and deeply eccentric Arnie Lerma, when I asked him for a puff for the <laughs> new version of um, Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky, wrote uh, before the internet and safety in numbers, there was John Atack. <laughs> and um, there have been very few people, in fact, um, through the 60s, 70s, and me in the 80s and into the 90s. I think that a couple of things happened that really changed. I mean, I hope the material that I put into the public record and a great deal of the original documents that are on, on the Internet um, came out of my collection. To, you know, on 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 route there, the OT three right. packs, the OT five packs, all sorts of things passed through my hands. You know, the OT five pack that the Swedish Parliament made public uh, has my handwriting on it. I think um, certainly has my fingerprints on it. Um, but it was a, it was just impossible the, the resistance that there was the general feeling in the public that Scientology was a bad thing. There was also the general feeling when I was trying to get Blue Sky published originally 
I sent it to 50 publishers, 11 of whom came back and said, we would have liked to publish this, but there's right. no money in it because they'll sue us. Collins, who were now HarperCollins, they were the biggest publisher in the world at the time. And they held the book for three months going, this is fascinating. You know, I'm glad they didn't publish it because that was an early draft, you know, and I <laughs> found out a great deal more. But nonetheless, there was that fear. So what changed that was the time case. Rich Behar being right. sued and Scientology not being able to defeat time. And I had a big, I uh, edited that, that article for the Reader's Digest. I didn't charge them for doing it either. I'm an idiot. Oh, wow. But it's interesting the Reader's Digest were not sued because I saw the pieces that they would latch onto and litigate over, even though they'd lose. There'd have to be evidentiary hearings and the paper mountain that leads up to that. I think being defeated in that case led Miscavige to change his mind about the virtues of litigation. So the war chest of the IAS and all of this, it was like, well, he might as well put it in his living trust in the Netherlands Antilles and keep it for himself rather than spending millions on lawyers. Well, so that, that, and that was something you experienced from the inside, yeah? Well, that's that's in part true, John. I think that it, it's certainly true with respect to suing the media. Mm. But as you know, um, and wanting that, religious status, of course, you know, right yeah. after that, um, there was a bunch of lawsuits filed about um, materials on the Internet. You know, uh, <laughs> there was a whole bunch of people sued about that. And it, we're talking those... about the case in the 90s against fact. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, and yeah. Dennis and, Ehrlich you know, and, and yeah. Grady Ward and well, of course, the time case didn't finish until two thousand and eleven. Yeah, it's all I within know, that but period. Yeah, it it had been like you will note notice that there is no media that was sued subsequent to the original decision in the federal court in New York on the time case. Mm. Yes, the appeals went on. It got appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court ultimately, who rejected certain, you know. But after that decision came out, and that decision was a pretty, um, a pretty devastating takedown of the theories that were presented in that case, mm -hmm. and created like the law that is used to this day about the standards for actual malice, which is a requirement for suing the media in the United States. Yes. Um, there were, there were no more suits against the media except for one, which was the Washington post, but they didn't get sued for an article they wrote. They got sued for holding the OT materials in their safe that, um, that, uh, what's his name? The reporter had gotten Richard Leiby had gotten, I think from Arnie Lerma, um, <laughs> and Very put them in the safe in the Washington Post, and they refused to return them. So they got included in the suit against whatever the ISP was in Virginia and Arnie Lerma and whoever else was involved in, in that. But there was a bunch of litigation that, that subsequently came after that. None of those worked out. None of those were successful. And since then... The only lawsuit that I am familiar with Scientology filing um, is the Debbie Cook case. Yeah. And that went in the shitter like after one day. And subsequent to that, there hasn't been any litigation that they have filed against anyone mm -hmm. 
for anything. Mm. They have been sued a number of times and, uh, you know, fighting this fight of the ridiculous, we've got religious arbitration, which is really a committee of evidence, which is not in any way, shape or form arbitration. But that's the only stuff that's happened. So the threats letters, <coughs> excuse me, the threat letters that their lawyers send these days are are very hollow. Mm. The media gets these threat letters now and basically yawns and goes, yep, no, you know, some lawyer just made a few thousand bucks for writing a letter. That's it. That's all that's going to happen. Mm. And so that has taken away a lot of the, the teeth to the threats of Scientology. They have yeah. always been threatening and they continue to threaten to this day. But back in the day, they used to carry out some of those threats mm. and sue media and sue people. And, you know, that was part of the, the sort of Hubbard mantra was, well, you know, a lawsuit will shut them up that, you know, yeah. we don't even need to win it. It'll just shut them up. So that these days, that ain't, that ain't the case. And I think that, that I, I think that the, the lifespan of the organization of Scientology is like on a, a half life every year it's kind of getting twice as close to the end as it was the year before mm -hmm. i don't think that the subject will ever go away you know the books will always exist the 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 lectures of hubbard will always exist and i don't mean in on titanium containers in you know bomb nuclear bomb proof vaults i mean in libraries in people's houses like you can't kill off ideas like that but That's the organization yeah. that can be that can be pulled to pieces and no longer exist. And that is what I think is the the clear trajectory of Scientology at this point is the organization is failing and failing more miserably each year than they did the year before. Mm -hmm. And every year the failure is becoming more dramatic, more miserable, more, more pronounced. And that trajectory, I hope to uh, keep, assist. keep heading in that direction. Yeah. Ex uh, yeah. Assist. Con contribute and, and to its motion. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. I mean, Hubbard, Hubbard um, explains it very simply in, in what he says comes from the Vedic literature, the cycle of action, birth, growth, conservation, decay, and death. The golden age of tech was the conservation period, the, the last of the cons, and, and it's been in decay ever since. Mm -hmm. And as, as you say, that trajectory has been experienced by many groups which, which had tremendous influence. Uh, theosophy, for example, was you know, right through the Western world. Very influential people were involved with theosophy. And then I think it was in 1923 when Jiddu Krishnamurti attained his majority he's 21 he's been groomed as the messiah because his brother turned out to be a very naughty boy so he got rid of the brother and jiddu became the messiah and at 21 he um gave all the money away 
you know, I, it was my my model for Scientology that hopefully whoever took it over from Miscavige, and you know, there's there was a point there was a will that named Roanne Hubbard, um, I think in about 1981 or something. But if I'm pretty sure from my brief contact with Roanne that that she would have just given it all away because she's a wonderful person, <laughs> you know. Um, but she doesn't want anything to do with it, quite understandably, having spent what 34 years of our life involved in it. But the same with, say, Christian science, which was incredibly influential and mm -hmm. is the model for Scientology. Mary Baker G. Eddy is, is an L. Ron Hubbard um, of Charlotte and Ander Crank. And it, it's, it's just little old ladies in reading rooms now, Christian I know. science. And, and I think I've thought for decades that's the way Scientology will go. Out of the ashes of that will rise other groups. Um, in 1993, a friend of mine had put together a list, which I added a few things to. We found 200 splinter groups by that time from Scientology. Some of them, like then Earhart's Est, where some ideas of Scientology have been allied with other ideas, or Paul <coughs> Twitchell's Eckencar, uh, which is about fairies, but uh, Twitchell used to write uh, professional auditors' bulletins for Hubbard. S strangely, his name's been taken off the ones he wrote. Oh, um, Darfree John, who was a significantly nasty character, went through Scientology. But then there were, you know, synergetics and uh, art cultures, enlightenment intensive, all of these these things. That's going to continue at the moment. The, the group that, that worries me the most and has done since its inception is Avatar, which um, is Harry Palmer. And he was the Elmira mission holder. I yeah, just, yeah had a conversation with a 21-year member of this group. And, you know, I remember when he left, he ran an independent mission for a while, and then his staff started talking to the newspapers. And he said he, or so I was told, it is alleged, um, that he told staff that their ethics files would be made public if they kept talking about him. So he'd got a, you know, a fine ethical foundation. And, and that might be slightly ironic in case anybody was worried about that. Um, <laughs> th so there will be other groups, there will be other ideas. And I mean, uh, um, there's, oh, I can't, what was her name? She, there's a class 12 who, um, she was working for Sarge Gabodi and David Mayo. And um, of course there were only, what, 56 class 12s or something. Yeah. But when I first went to Palo Alto and interviewed David Mayo in 1986. And I was around for two, two week periods then and spent a fair amount of time with him and other people there. Um, she wouldn't talk to me. She, she, she wouldn't say hello. She wouldn't, uh, uh, Pauline, uh, Orsley, Paulette Orsley. Paulette. Yes. She, uh, she was Paulette Mahurin, I think by this time. And she just looked the other way when I was in the room. And I really didn't understand this. In 1988, I went back and I was at a party and uh, with lots of people around. And there she was. And she let rip. And she said, you're giving Hubbard what he wanted. You're making him famous. That's what he wanted. How dare you? And it's like, yeah, if I was writing about Hitler, Stalin or Mao, this, this wouldn't bother me. You, on the <laughs> other hand, are giving people auditing and messing their heads up with this stuff. You know, it's like, <laughs> but um, it, yeah, the, 
so so I, I I agree with you. I think it will deteriorate. I think the ideas are risible um, and and people will probably see that, but there'll also be a lot of people who find a way of making money by repackaging these notions. Um, yeah, you know, hopefully well, you know, Keith Ranieri is a is a classic example. I mean, the more I've learned about Nexium and I have become pretty good friends with with, you know, the, the stars of the Sarah, the Sarah and Nippy and yeah. Sarah and Nippy and Mark and Bonnie. Um, yeah. The depth of of plagiarism from Scientology into Nexium is astonishing, mm. John. Yeah, yeah, I've like, looked at it too. Not just concepts, even yeah. words. Mm. Like, you know, they, they've got, they. he took so much stuff from Scientology, it's not funny. And, you know, I, I agree with you. There is going to be people like that who are going to see, um, look, you know, this guy, Hubbard, built a little empire for himself and, you know, he ended up with, you know, a few hundred million dollars. So he must have done some things right from the perspective of, okay, let's sell these people a piece of blue sky. You know, this is this is a, a successful model for the up and coming cult leader and a <laughs> successful pattern to follow. And a lot of it has been... It, it, the the thing about Scientology is it's so well documented, like it's all written down. All, all how to go about doing all this shit is all described in great detail in in by Hubbard himself. Yep. And if you if you can pass through the pass p a r s e pass through the the stuff that uh, and you know there's a lot of it as you know and and pick out those elements that are the ones that really seem to have worked the best you keith ranieri i mean the what that guy managed to accomplish in virtually no time ending up with people literally being his slaves is a pretty astonishing feat being branded and, on the on the crotch during a ceremony that was filmed for his personal pleasure and then giving him sexual relief, even though Viagra didn't work on Keith Ranieri. Right. I mean, yeah. this is... Th despicable, this is, man. But regardless of him being despicable, and despicable is such a nice word to use to it describe is. that it guy, it, it is also very educational hmm. to look at this and go, hmm, yeah, this... this this evil that is contained within the the writings and ideas of Hubbard is an exportable evil. So we got to always be careful. Like Scientology may, the organization will eventually go away, but just as you say, pieces of it will live on and people will take that and use it to try to do a Harry Palmer or a Keith Ranieri or oh, whatever. So the the education process on on the subject of of you know brainwashing, mind control, cults, whatever you want to call it, is ultimately a never-ending job. There there is no end to this 
actually. There could be an end to Scientology, but there's not going to be an end to people figuring out how to, to manipulate and control people. And unfortunately, Hubbard will be used for a long time into the future as a model for sociopaths who want to accomplish that objective. That's Absolutely. my, yep. uh, you know, you know, pessimistic view of the world. Yeah, my optimistic view of the world. Um, I went through, you know, the layers of the onion. We talked about that. And, you know, the, the simple thing is usually the organization is dangerous. Leave the organization, carry on with Scientology. We don't use the ethics policies anymore or minimally. Oh, the admin stuff doesn't work. Uh, right. Oh, Hubbard was a charlatan. Oh, finally. And people can walk around with the idea Hubbard was a con man, a charlatan, and still believe that Scientology works, which fascinates me. And the last thing to go will be the technology of auditing. But so I went through those processes. I wrote, I wrote the book. <laughs> people say he wrote the book. I did write the book that um, there's only Janet Reitman who's challenged me by saying that she wrote the first modern objective history of Scientology, which when you look at the chapter references to the first seven chapters, it says largely based upon a piece of blue sky or barefaced messiah, which is also based upon a piece of blue sky. So modern and objective, there you go. But the history, the biography, beyond that, I started going, how did it work? And then, of course, I found out that it works in the same way as all of the other authoritarian cults have worked. And my study was fairly wide ranging, you know, from the uh, mystery cults of 1800 BC through to, you know, Mao. I've, I've read a great deal about Chinese so-called brainwashing. And there is a there's a psychology and boils down to one thing, and that one thing is authoritarianism. The idea that there are people who are invested with godlike knowledge who can tell us all what to do, yep. and then there are people who believe in them and follow them, and that's about 60% of the population. And that's an estimation made by Schopenhauer, by Eric Fromm, by Milgram, and more recently by Jane McGregor here at Nottingham University. About 60% of people don't really grow up and they're always looking at what they ought to do and following the certainty. We come back to that, that concept, which to me is the fundamental concept. William James, called the father of psychology, said, we have feelings of knowing. We have the sense of certainty. The story I always tell, 17, I've told you this before, this guy is trying to sell me on Jesus. And he walks away from me and says, I don't understand the Bible, but I know it's all true. Those are feelings mm -hmm. of knowing. And we are all of us so susceptible to those. I'd like it to be true. I, yes. I want it to be true. I think that, and the reason I'm optimistic is that it is very possible and fairly easy to teach kids who've not had this done to them, how to recognize narcissists, sociopaths, what I call human predators. Uh, how to see the techniques they use, how to evaluate information. I mean, we had this thing a few years ago where social media were, go, you know, they were going to launch programs. I think Vodafone did one that, that would teach us how to recognize bullshit, fake news. None of those programs is effective, but I have been working on such a program and, and 
I think it's, you know, in a day, you can pretty much proof somebody up. So they will see it, that they will go, ah, you, that's love bombing. I've seen that before. You're pretending to be my best friend and I've never right. met you. So you can teach those things. And I think that, and, and it's necessary to expose the cults, the groups that do this. Um, and so ontology is endlessly fascinating. You know, it's just the most bizarre, surreal tale imaginable. Um, and so I think it'll be a whole genre in movies in about 10 years time. There'll be all these movies about Ron Hubbard and Scientology and things of this type, you know, and unlike the master, they won't have to be carefully scratching right. out of the script. Though, <laughs> um, so, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman, a brilliant guy. Um, and um, what's his name? Uh, Phoenix, uh, Joaquin Phoenix, brilliant actors. But I think that by teaching how this stuff works, how it all works, how Mao was able to, it still is hero worshipped in a place where 70 million deaths are attributed to him, how the Kim mm -hmm. family are venerated in North Korea. There, <clears throat> there are simple techniques that are being used here, which anybody can pretty much understand. So I, I think there is some hope for humanity. The dark side of this is, if we don't learn these lessons about the bullies, about the authoritarians, there isn't any hope for humanity because we'll keep <laughs> fighting wars and we'll keep destroying and degrading the environment. And eventually, you know, the dystopia will, will appear. The, you know, the brave new world will collapse into a kind of 1984 scenario. But I think we're at the cusp. I think we're at a point where we have the tools, um, but unfortunately they're not being shared with our children. And, right. Uh, I'm doing what I can about that. And so anybody that wants to sign up to our Patreon account, uh, that'll be useful um, to, towards uh, making sure that Spike's got enough time to help me do it. <laughs> but so uh, the other thing I was going to say about the, the, the and, and we're, we must be at about the end of this now, but um, the, the, the other, to me, significant change that happened in Scientology, apart, of course, from the departure of, of Mike Rinder, which... I think proved to be quite important in moving things along that what you've revealed and shared has been very helpful. I think South Park destroyed Scientology's power of recruitment among teenagers because they, <laughs> oh yeah, you've seen this thing about Tom Cruise in the closet. You, know? you may be right about that, John. You, you may be right about that. I never really thought about it from that perspective, but South Park is enormously influential with young people, like yeah. enormously. And I never really realized that because I was never a consumer of South yeah. Park. Like I, I was in the Sea Org when it started and, it, and you know, it's it, I have always viewed it as just sort of kind of juvenile, kind of like it's not what I would sit down and watch on TV. No. So I've never really been a a South Park aficionado, mm -hmm. but I know a lot of people who religiously watch that show and are ex extraordinarily influenced by it, mm -hmm. even down to language mm -hmm. and what you know what is uh what is the way on how do you describe things and like even my son will and he'll say something and i say where's that come from oh that's what they say on south park oh, respect really? my authority yeah, exactly like the, the, so 
Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe you're I, right. Maybe I I've it, maybe I've di dismissed that too too much as being you know ah it's just a, a comic book and nobody really pays any attention. I think morally, South Park has been a tremendously important thing. That the way that they have lampooned everything. Um, oh, know, I know they are equal opportunity uh, jokers and degraders for but certain. You know, if you look at the episodes, you know where where uh, Cartman it wakes up to find that he's a ginge, and so he sets up a kind of Nazi organization to kill everybody who's not a ginge. There are all sorts of reflections upon our society. I um, know, and I think the same was true for The Simpsons, though it's you know not as obscene. Uh, Futurama, um, that maybe the the cultural driver at the moment, the thing that is influencing children most is you know rick and morty or, or these things and having seen it with my own kids um you, you say you know there are people who watch south park religiously my great friend and colleague yuval laor who has a phd and is one of the cleverest people I've, he's seen every episode of south park he won't miss it you know every episode of rick and morty and i think he's right that that culturally this is affecting children a lot more than school right and, and we should school should be as much fun as South Park fundamentally, <laughs> though Paris Hilton and Mr. Slave probably shouldn't be involved in the teaching process. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, well, dear. From the sublime to the ridiculous, or at least yep. from the ridiculous to the ridiculous. Always a well, tremendous pleasure. Oh, it's always fun, John. Like, I don't know how, how we managed to get through this time talking about just random stuff that comes into our minds it's just like oh okay let's go down this path but it's 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 always educational for me and i uh, i really appreciate that i i i feel like i'm coming to uh an hour of the day where i'm going to learn something that i didn't know and that is or more than one thing and that is that is very valuable and i appreciate it yeah i do too that um you know, in talking with you, you always provide insight, always, and um, I, I think there's a very, I think there is a very important thing about the concept of authoritarianism. I think authority is a good thing. You know, if I want the pipes fixed, I go to a plumber. If if I want need surgery, I go to a surgeon. I'll, I'll be seeing my dentist this week. So they have authority, they have expertise, but there's this other kind of authority, which is the rank authority. You know, I've been appointed the boss and I'm going right. to, I'm Ron Hubbard, I'm going to tell you what to do. And it's really harmful to our society. And so having, for me in conversation, that 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 sort of, you know, uh, Hubbard talks about the altitude of the teacher. And he quite rightly says that when somebody has enough authority or altitude, they become a hypnotic operator. People just mm -hmm. do what they think. I don't want to achieve that point. I, my email address used to be anti-guru for some years <laughs> that I, I, because I realized that, that it really isn't like that, that, right. that there is no perfected human being who, who you know, and, and so by having conversations with, you know, intelligent and experienced people such as yourself, it, it's always fruitful for me. There's always something I come away with. So, uh, thank you very much indeed. And, um, we'll, uh, regroup in a few weeks yes. time. All right, my friend.
Great. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Hi, John here. Thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you'd click like, as well as subscribe, and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps, and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. Or you can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much. And that might be slightly ironic in case anybody was worried about that. <laughs>